Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Modern technology can be one of our most powerful allies to heal and to radiant health. In this episode, I speak to Dr. Michael Snyder about the current state and the future of wearable technology and big data and how it shapes personalized medicine. Dr. Michael Snyder is the chairman of the Department of Genetics and the director of the Center for Genomics and Personalized Medicine at Stanford University. Wearable electronic devices can help consumers and patients monitor their health, sleep, fitness, mood, and even alert to the presence of an infection. Additionally, wearables can share information with the user's physician, enabling the wearer to monitor and maintain health in real time. Dr. Snyder himself uses eight wearables and refers to himself as one of the most extensively monitored scientific researchers. When it comes to data, he is an advocate for more is better, and today he will share with us why. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting-edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Mike, welcome to the Superhumanize podcast. I'm absolutely thrilled to speak with you, and I'm very grateful you made time for us today. My pleasure. <laughs> Mike, you're the uh, principal investigator at Snyder Labs, which is part of the Department of Genetics at Stanford Medicine. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do there so the audience gets an idea about the scope of your work? Sure. So, um... I did say the main emphasis of our lab is to try and use big data, brand new technologies that we've just basically been invented over the last decade or so and try and bring them into managing health. And so what I really want to do is transform healthcare, which these days is really sick care and transform it into truly healthcare, where we can keep people healthy, catch disease early, mm -hmm. uh, and basically, as I say, change the whole system. That's the goal. Outstanding. Yes, I've heard you say that also in other interviews, and you're very outspoken about thinking that the way healthcare is practiced these days is completely wrong. And um, so you actually do genomic analysis, right? And your own showed that you were actually at risk for type 2 diabetes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, please? Yeah, sure. So when genome sequencing was first brand new, I was probably one of the earliest to get my genome sequence. And we discovered through another group actually helping analyze it, and they saw that I was at high risk for type 2 diabetes, which was a surprise to me at the time because uh, I wasn't aware of it in a family history. In hindsight, I think you can go back and see it probably was there, but it wasn't evident to me. I grew up in rural America, and people died you know, in their 70s, and that was of old age. And of course, these days, you would always ascribe what that actually means, did they die of a heart attack, did they die of what exactly? Uh, and I don't think that was ever evident to me, uh, they just died of old age. So 
but but anyway, from my genome, there was a prediction. It's complicated the way you analyze it. Something called polygenic risk scores. But uh, anyway, this group was expert at. So Mike, you're really at the high end of the risk category for this, and I'm a bit surprised. So um, we we then started getting glucose measurement tests. Uh, uh, it's part of a study we've been doing. We launched on me actually. It's, it's actually collect all kinds of big data to see what it means to be healthy, see what we can use to better manage people's health. So the genome sequencing is useful for trying to predict disease risk because a lot mm -hmm. of uh, diseases do have a genetic component, probably all do actually. Anyway, we, we saw this high risk for type two diabetes from my genome. So I started getting some measurements and much to my surprise when I first got measured, my glucose was running high. Uh, which I'd never seen before, and you know, quite high actually is right borderline for type 2 diabetes. A week later, I actually crossed the threshold, and it was classified as diabetic, in fact. Uh, and so that was a big surprise to me because it, to me, it came out of nowhere. It turned out to be quite interesting because it was about three weeks after I had a very nasty viral infection called mm -hmm. respiratory syncytial virus. It's, it's very relevant to today's world where COVID's running around and a lot of people are coming out diabetic. But this is the first time anyone had ascribed type 2 diabetes to a viral infection. It's been, it's, it had been suggested for type 1 previously, but not type 2. And so what happened was, uh, yeah, basically I was diagnosed with diabetes. My genome put me on the alert for it. I basically had to totally change my lifestyle, uh, meaning I cut out all sugars. I'd been biking, you know, I'm in California, so biking's pretty easy. <laughs> and I, I cut out all the excuses is really what I did. So, you know, if it was drizzling a little bit in the rain, I would still bike now, whereas before I would probably be lazy and take the car. And yeah, bike everywhere, basically. And, and then I started running and that actually worked. I was able to get my glucose under control, at least for several years, got it all the way back down to normal baseline. And then several years later, actually, uh, it was so boringly low, I stopped looking at it. But at, at one point, but it's still collecting data. And ironically, someone else looked at it and said, Mike, you realize you're back to diabetic again? Hmm. And I was very, very shocked. I said, oh, I had no idea. And we looked back. And it turns out uh, it had spiked up once again. And guess what? It turns out when I had stopped running, <laughs> which is after several years, and also uh, um, I had a second viral infection during that time. So it's not clear whether it was running viral infection. I think it's a combination of both actually triggered it. So the punchline of all this is that uh, I'm probably genetically predisposed for type 2 diabetes. And then these viral infections actually caused changes that actually led to this, this onset of type two diabetes. And so, and it's first time that had been shown and we've done some follow-up experiments actually there's something called epigenetics. I do have epigenetic changes that did appear in, in each case, they have actually just preceding when my glucose went up. So we think that's what's going on here. Uh, you're, you're, that the viral infection probably triggered uh, some epigenetic changes that, that actually led to uh, my onset of type two diabetes. So it's, it's scientifically, it's pretty cool. Uh, wow. you know, nobody wants to be type two diabetic, but it's better. I caught it sooner rather than later. Absolutely. And if I got the numbers correct, I think it's about 9% of the U S population is diabetic and about 33% are pre-diabetic. Spot on. Yep. And, and, and so with regards to technology, how exactly can technology save lives by identifying these illnesses early on? What is the key to that? Well, I do think that genome sequencing will uncover some fraction because 
there's certain kinds of diabetes that have very strong genetic components are called mm-hmm. Modi. Uh, and believe it or not, nobody ever screens for these, but it's pretty simple if you actually, you actually could screen for this. Uh, and, and, but it's not done. Actually, in the UK, I'm pretty sure they're doing it now, if I have this right. Uh, but anyway, that covers a couple percent of people. Uh, there are also, in my case, that's what's called polygenic risk score. That can be done as well. But to be honest, it only works if you're at the extreme end of the distribution, which I am. And so we still need new ways to analyze genomes better. It's something our lab's working on. And I hope that we'll, we, we have some very cool new technologies and approaches for this. So I hope we'll get a lot better in the future. But it, so it's working somewhat now, but we can do better. Um, yeah, but that's not the only technology. That's just one. Obviously, getting your glucose screened a lot is a no-brainer, uh, even something called a hemoglobin A1C. But there's a new uh, um, technology out there that your listeners may be interested in. It's called continuous glucose monitoring. Mm-hmm. And it follows your glucose, basically takes a measurement every five minutes, uh, your glucose levels. And so you can see if they're rising. Now, what we discovered, again, this is something our lab got involved in very early on. It was being used for type one diabetics to help set up what are called closed loop systems for type two diabetics where they're on insulin. So they can adjust um, their basically insulin levels in response to glucose spiking. And so these monitors are really useful for that. But we actually just started putting them on normal people. People are pre-diabetic and a couple of diabetics. And there's no surprise diabetics spike their glucose through the roof because they don't have good glucose control. But much to our surprise, so do a lot of pre-diabetics and so do a lot of normal people. A lot of normal people are running around out there not realizing they're spiking away, not so good. And so uh, it turns out this is very, very personal. Different foods spike people differently. Mm-hmm. And so if you ever wear one of these things, it's really eye-opening. I don't know if you have, but they're pretty incredible. Uh, so, um, yeah, and you'll see, you know, some people will spike to bananas, others to pasta, some people to bread. It really varies. And your microbiome is part of it. It's not the only part. It's a part of it. We don't understand all, all the other features. That's something our lab and others are working on. But there's no question that, uh, again, we all behave differently. And if you wear one of these monitors, as I say, you'll, you'll be kind of shocked. You know, most probably young people have very, very good glucose control. But as you get older, you lose it. Uh, and you'll see what food spike you. So in my case, you know, all, a lot of it was obvious in hindsight. You know, I had a pulled pork sandwich and my glucose went to 350, you know, right through the ceiling. And I was like shocked. And I showed this to a friend of mine who said, well, Mike, everybody knows pulled pork and sugar. In. And I like, hit myself in the head. I said, oh, I didn't know that. But in hindsight, it makes a lot of sense. It tastes kind of sweet. So, uh, but I did, you know, I'm not the only buffoon in this way. There are other people, you know, the New York Times reporter was telling me he, he thought he was eating a healthy lunch every day. He had salmon on, sal- on, on lettuce, right? Mm-hmm. What could be healthier than that? Well, it turns out he, when he started wearing one of these monitors, he discovered it was that was spiking him through the roof. And it turns out it's the balsam <laughs> sauce he put on top that had sugar in it, right? So in hindsight, some of the stuff is obvious, but you're not really cognizant of everything going on. So all you do is leave that off and suddenly his healthy salad really was healthy. So mm-hmm. it's things like that. So they're very, very eye-opening. So I, I for those of you who are really into monitoring your health, I think you're going to find this incredible because yeah, U S is becoming very typical 
uh, you know, probably leading the way in diabetes and obesity, but other countries, you know, Western Europe, you know, Europe oh, yeah. is coming the same way. And even Japan, which used to be very, very healthy Asian general, is heading in this direction as well. So I, I think this is going to be a big deal. It's very, very eye-opening. And the nice thing about Europe, though, is these things are over the counter. You can just walk in and get them. In the U.S., you still need a physician to, to That's surprising. That's actually really surprising because usually I find that, uh, you know, I've been living in the U.S. for over 17 years this time around. I uh, lived in the U.S. prior. Uh, I'm German-born, lived in Europe many, many years. And usually I find that within the EU, depending on the country, it's much more difficult to get certain things and you need prescriptions for them. We're here. A lot of stuff is over the counter. counter. So I had no idea that with regards to this particular uh, issue or device that it's so much easier. I shall check that well, out. Yes and no. I think Europe has, is more lax on the pharma side of certain things, but they're more stringent in other sides of things, as you point out. And data sharing is really, really hard in Europe, uh, which yes. is kind of a shame. The privacy, it's a little, in my opinion, too harsh because it actually impedes science and trying to improve health for people overall if we can't share data well. So yeah. it's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. But um, and, and even the U.S., by the way, they're not that great either. But Europe is much, much tougher. Uh, but anyway, so each each continent has its own yeah. <laughs> issues, I guess. And and you're bringing in a really uh, important and interesting issue, you know, data and privacy. Um, I saw that in one of your talks, you said that you can actually see the smartphone, your smartphone as a command center for your own health. Um, but as you mentioned, there are privacy concerns, you know, when, when we use all these different apps or the smartwatches. Um, how can we address these concerns and what needs to be done so people can feel safer with this? Yeah, let me give a little more overview first, uh, which is we do collect all kinds of big data. So we'll be collecting mole molecular measurements on, so we sequence people's genome. We're doing this for a smallish group of people. So it's been a proof of principle, but we've scaled it as a company. So, uh, the and, and so, uh, the data we collect are people's genome sequences. We'll collect uh, molecular measurements from their blood, from their urine. Uh, we do the microbiome. You may know that's very, very important for mm -hmm. health. So we do the gut and nasal, more recently skin and, and tongue. It's been quite fascinating, the results we've learned. It's all research study. Uh, and then wearables we're doing a ton with. Well, I'm sure we'll dive into that pretty deeply uh, because they're very, very powerful uh, and then we do some, you know, deep clinical measurements uh, and some advanced tests around like stress echocardiograms and, and glucose control measurements, <clears throat> excuse me, for things like insulin resistance and, and oral glucose tolerance tests. These are, again, for the efficient autos, more glucose dysregulation kinds of control. Uh, and, and so that we're trying to get very, very complete pictures on people's health. So we're not you know, if you think about a jigsaw puzzle, you don't solve a jigsaw puzzle by looking at 10 pieces. You We're trying to look at all 1,500 that make up a puzzle. That's our mission. And so that's what we've been doing. So with that, we're bringing in tons and tons of data, as you point out, and then people, we're trying to aggregate it, put, put it together in a useful fashion because nobody can look at, just like, you, you know, you can't count all 1,500 pieces, at least all at once. You'd see the whole picture. Uh, we're trying to organize the data in ways that actually both physicians and consumers can look at this. So we've we built apps and an infrastructure to display data in a way that the consumer can look at it. Uh, like you can look at your wearable data, you can look at your clinical data, even your microbiome data, all this data. 
we have displayed, I think, in a pretty organized fashion so that you can, again, get a, a, a you know, a snapshot of your health at a level that's never been possible. But the issue does come up about, you know, two kinds of issues get raised. One is the privacy. Gosh, what, who's, you know, who's going to access the data? Can you be discriminated against? My own view on this is, uh, you know, privacy, you know, get over it. Uh, nothing's truly private anymore. Uh we, but having said that, we try to be as, you know, we, everything's encrypted. We're trying to be as secure as possible, but everything is hackable at some level. But on the other hand, if you think about it, you know, we're very comfortable sharing credit card information, which if you think about it, has incredibly personal information on it, possibly more personal than your health data, depending what your buying habits are. Uh, and yet we share that freely. And the reason is obvious. Nobody wants to walk around bags of cash. It's very, very convenient to do that. So I think sharing your, you know, pulling in lots of health data to get a better picture of your health. Uh, and, 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 you know, I think that'll improve your life is more important than worrying about somebody else going to hack it. Uh, and if they do, if someone were to take advantage of it, say, you know, your insurer, provider, uh, that's where we need laws to step in and protect people from that. And so that's, in my mind, the job of government to help people do things for themselves they can't do for themselves. So bottom line is, uh, uh, yeah, we just need protection laws. Everybody should have some level, in my mind, to access the healthcare. And some countries are pretty good at, all wealthy countries should be able to do that, in my opinion. So bottom line is, uh, yeah, it could it could be used to discriminate. If that does appear, we should just you know, come up with ways to protect people. Uh, but in the end, this, these data should be just useful for managing people's health. They already have this. If I back up a little bit, just from the, these 109 people we've been pro following now for eight and a half years, long time, uh, just from the first three and a half years, I don't have the final summary, uh, basically 49 people learned something really, really important about their health before symptoms, because we're following people while they're healthy over time. That's the key. It's big data, following them over time. And we'll see things go off again in advance of symptoms, which is what you want. You don't want to wait till people get symptomatic. And I'll give you a few good examples. We caught someone with early lymphoma, two people with pre-cancers that can convert to aggressive cancer. We caught it early, so they haven't. Uh, two people with serious heart issues. Uh, one, both were quite young, actually. So surprise, one came from their genome sequence, comes back to genome sequencing. So no one technology did it. All these different types of big data we were collecting different things exposed different conditions to different people. So it was a combination that gave us that big jig jigsaw puzzle view. And so I'm, I'm a believer we need this. Now we're doing it in a research fashion. You know, I'm totally conflicted, but we spun off a company to do this. People always ask me, well, how are you going to scale this to the planet? And and, you know, I'm in Silicon Valley, so the way you do it, start a company, uh, and they can do this, uh, they do a medical version of this, they're incredibly efficient, they have some new technologies, but they're doing a medical version with whole body MRI as well. And this will relay back to the opening way we started here, which is, you know, I said the medical system's broken, and MRI is a classic example. If I tell any physician in the U.S. about doing a whole body MRI, their instant reactions, you absolutely shouldn't do that because you're gonna have nodules. And that's true. Women will have nodules in their ovaries, men will have them in their prostates. Uh, we all have nodules and that's not the point. The point is, are any of them growing? Do you have any growing nodules? And that was a big difference. Uh, and so you need longitudinal profiles. And if you saw any that were growing, well, you'd have to take action. 
But you want to know if you have any nodules in the first place, because, and I do, I have one on my spine and a few others scattered about. Uh, I, but I want to know that because imagine I ever get cancer. Um, they'll do an MRI on me to see if it's metastasized. And if I don't have that baseline measurement, how would they possibly know if it, that with these nodules that I have now aren't metastasized from the, some cancer they discovered, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So they'll have, uh, you may say, oh, that's fine. That nodule is in your back. Oh gosh, your cancer must have metastasized. When in fact it was there all the time. It's not, it hasn't been growing. I've seen it five, for the last five years, has it grown an inch or a millimeter. <laughs> so the point is you want to know what your baseline is mm -hmm. so that you can see shifts from the baseline. And that's the important point. That makes total sense. And uh, I agree with you too. I personally um, see more benefit in monitoring my health. Um, it's my personal decision. I want to stay on top of things. I want to be ahead of things. And uh, certain diseases, if you catch them early on or certain markers are off, you can avoid a lot of pain and suffering. And as long as that's an option that's provided to us, I think it's fantastic. And I, I mean, think you, you have to do this. Is what, I think medicine has to go this way. And here's the other thing people don't realize. It's another one of my pet peeves. Every decision about your health is based on population-based measurements. Mm -hmm. And that's very, very hard. And what people don't realize, I, I like to use this example a lot, but people assume your, your temperature when you put a thermometer in your mouth is 98.6. And it turns out, first of all, that number is wrong. The average temperature is 97.5. But more importantly, there's a spread. 25% so of people are running around at 94.6, so four degrees lower than the perceived uh, average temperature. And others are running around 75th quartile 99.1. And so people's baseline is all over the place. And if your normal baseline, mine happens to be 97.3, and if your normal baseline is 94.6, which is not so uncommon, and you go into the physician's office and they measure you at 98.6, you're at four degrees Fahrenheit, but they'll tell you you're healthy. Everything's great. You're normal. Uh, hmm. you know, but you're again, you're at four degrees high, and I guarantee you're ill, and they would miss that by today's yeah. approach. And so we, we're a big advocate, which it sounds like you are too, know what your healthy baseline is. There's a lot of people, you wouldn't realize this, even in the normal spread range for when you get go to a doctor's office, they measure these 15 things they do, which is woefully inadequate. But even when they do that, the range is really, really big. And you could be at the bottom of the range, you know, visit after visit after visit. And then one time go in and it's still in the normal range, but up near the very top, meaning you're heading in a bad direction. Mm -hmm. And so you're in normal range, everything's fine, you're, you're fine. But with the trajectory, you might want to keep an eye on that and maybe get measured. Don't wait two years, get measured in a month and see if it's still heading in the wrong direction. We had a case like that. And one of the people we were studying his, his someone's markers was off again in the normal range, but it was just way, way higher. And we followed up quickly. And sure enough, he was just heading in the wrong direction. So we caught something going on with his liver, he was able to change his diet and fix it. So that was kind of cool. Outstanding. Yeah. But it's a case of following people's longitudinal profiles. So, yeah. Yes. And um, to, you know, button that particular topic up, which also started with uh, data collection and concerns 
potential concerns uh, with regards to privacy. You obviously are professionally also privately not adverse at all. That is what you eat, live, breathe. And um, I think you, before we started to uh, record for this interview, you actually showed me, I think you were wearing uh, four different devices on your arms. What types yeah. of what, what are you using to monitor your health? Well, so I use eight devices every day. So I'm wearing four smartwatches. They measure different things at different resolutions uh, mm -hmm. as well. So we're always evaluating them and trying to figure out how to optimize, uh, you know, what should be the best measurements. Like, so again, I'm conflicted. I have a company building a watch and they, um, you know, we want to optimize these watches for health. I don't care about reading email or answering phones off watches let your iPhone do that. Mm -hmm. So we, we are trying to optimize for that, but we're just trying to understand what is the best uh, devices and, and parameters we should be using for health optimization. So I'm sure we'll talk about this, but we can tell infectious disease from a smartwatch. Mm -hmm. uh, because you see a jump up in resting heart rate. And I want to be able to tell the difference between respiration respiratory viral diseases and, uh, um, for example, stress, workplace stress, both of which will change your heart rate. And so by having more data, we, we think we'll be able to detect disease better and also maybe differentiate the subcategories of, of conditions people might be experiencing. Mm. Um, something else I really found fascinating when I did a deep dive on you, um, you talk about the ageotype and that everyone is aging differently. And like uh, a car, where the whole uh, car gets older, but certain parts wear out first. And you put people in different categories, uh, cardio ager, kidney ager, liver ager, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? Yeah, so one of the neat things about our study is we're following people over time uh, while they're healthy. And so we can see basically how you're shifting. And, and so believe it or not, most of your molecules don't change over time. We're measuring, by the mm -hmm. way, tens of thousands of molecules, all these microbes in your microbiome. So we're measuring a lot and most of them don't change. But there's a certain set of molecules that change. Some change during the seasons, kind of interesting. And there's another set of molecules that change over time, which we associate with aging. And what we discovered is because we're seeing the same person over time, we can see at an individual level how people are aging. And what we discovered is, I don't think this is a complete surprise, just hadn't been shown before, but everybody's aging differently. Mm -hmm. So uh, we think you need as few as five measurements within two years, and we can tell how you're aging. We call these patterns ageotypes. So mm -hmm. I'm a pretty typical ager, like my coagulation pathway, metabolic pathway, other pathways go up. Uh, I, I show you an example, another person there, a cardio ager, their top pathways that are shifting are in the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy pathway shifting. So they're a cardio ager. We later learned that person was stage two hypertensive. So it sort of makes sense. But when we, we got all these patterns from people, it's not a huge number of people. We grouped them initially into four ageotypes, as we call them. I know they're more than that, but that's all we were statistically powered to do, to find. And so the four were kidney, liver, um, metabolic, and immune. So those are the four types of aging. I know there's a cardio ager. We only had one of those. That's why we didn't get to call it a category. There's going to be, I don't know, at least a dozen. Uh, but what we discovered then is that different people are aging differently. As I said, some people be aging in all four of those categories. Some people in three of the four, I'm three of the four. I'm not much of an immunoager. I think that's a good thing. My immune system's pretty robust, but I'm a metabolic kidney and liver 
age. And I think that fits with my glucose dysregulation. It's more than that. I have high cholesterol too, which I've got under control with statins. But uh, the point is that, yeah, my, my metabolic stuff is off. Some people be just kidney agers, other kidney and liver. Everybody, again, is aging differently. And we think by following this, that's useful. So the idea is that in general, as you point out, we think of people like cars. The car is getting older, but some parts are wearing out faster than others. And you kind of like to know that so you could take care of those parts maybe a little better. So maybe if you're a kidney ager, you drink more water. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're a liver ager, well, maybe you shouldn't, you know, do too much binge drinking, perhaps, uh, if you happen to be doing that. So, you know, th- it's actionable information. Immunoagers, maybe they, you know, have more turmeric or garlic or something like that that give their immune system a boost. So, so again, I, I think there are ways in which you could intervene to actually control this. And, and so we think that's kind of, kind of useful. So, Absolutely. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, all this collection of data and, you know, using the technology, it really, uh, I mean, we already have um, in certain pockets, certain parts of, for example, the US, certain people very much rely on what you can call personalized medicine. Uh, What do you predict for the future of personalized medicine and what role will wearables play? Yeah, great question. Well, I hope everybody has some form of a wearable. It may be an implantable in the future. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it could be a ring. I, I, I didn't say this. I usually wear a ring. I just happen to have lost mine. I wear continuous glucose monitors we talked about before. I use all kinds of devices every day. Uh, and I just think that's going to be part of routine health monitoring. So in my world, everybody will have one of these things. It's just like you don't drive your car around without a dashboard. Mm-hmm. Why would you not have a health monitor on you? And then use your iPhone as the health dashboard. I think it's gonna be more important to your physicians. They're gonna replace physicians. It's just going to augment what they can do. You can transfer all this information to the physician. So uh, yeah, it gives you a monitoring system for following your health, just like your car. You wanna know if something's going off. And I think the wearables is incredibly inexpensive and you may not realize this, but 3.8 billion people on this planet have a smartphone. So over half. Even in remote parts of the world, they people have smartphones and remote parts of the United States. And so if you think about it, that means they have the biggest part of what they need for a health monitor. You pair that with a $50 smartwatch or ring. Uh, the rings aren't $50 yet, but they will be. Uh, and suddenly you've got a health monitoring system for every person, uh, no matter what their economic status is, you know. Jeff Bezos could buy one for everyone on the planet, have one left over for a $50 smartwatch. And uh, I'm not saying yes, but you get the idea that this is affordable now. And so I think some level of monitoring. Now, my world in the future will be shifting things to health monitoring, not sick care. And so really, which is where we are now, people go to a doctor when they're ill. You rarely go to a doctor if you're healthy. And we won't be taking these 15 measurements. We're going to be taking way more measurements. A lot of those measurements in the doctor's office, a heart rate in the doctor's office is almost worthless because Mm -hmm. it depends whether you drove there or bike there, you're anxious Mm -hmm. or what have you. But you pull that measurement off in the morning from your smartwatch, you know exactly what your baseline is. And if it's off, something's up. Yeah. And I mean, if if you go to the doctor's office because you're not feeling well, of course you're going to be anxious. (laughs) You got it. The white coat syndrome, they call it. Yeah, absolutely. 
So in mine, you know, I don't get nervous because I do this stuff all the time, but my mm -hmm. heart rate will vary up to 40 beats per minute, just depending what's going on. And, you know, if I bike there, I can even wait 15 minutes, but it'll still be elevated. It doesn't come back that quickly. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it, it's they're just not some of the measurements are quite accurate, by the way, but some of them are just, you know, questionable. Right. So the bottom line is a smartwatch wearable. And that took a while, by the way, for me to convince physicians here when we started this, you know, first of all, physicians say, well, you shouldn't get your genome sequence because, you know, you're just going to scare everybody, turn them into hypochondriacs. They still say that now around big data, but they don't say as much around genome sequences because the some of the things that we found in people's genome, like we found somebody with a BRCA mutation, no idea. And we thought that was pretty important. Uh, and and same with the the, the wearables. They say, ah, oh, they're not very accurate. You know, they're not so good. Well, I'd say, well, they're actually more accurate, at least for some measurements, like heart rate, heart rate variability, much more accurate than what you'll measure in a doctor's office yeah. for determining someone's physiology. Some of the things aren't so accurate, but even that doesn't matter because what you're trying to do is see shifts. Like imagine you're measuring somebody's blood oxygen. It doesn't matter if the measurement's all that accurate, but what you want to do is see if there's a shift from your baseline, which tells you something's not quite right. And so that's what you're trying to do. And that's what these devices can do. And as I say, they're very inexpensive. Yes. So that's going to get to the world, I think, the wearables. And, and in my world, what we're going to do is you know, have a lot of uh, um, Amazonized healthcare where you actually would, you know, do a little blood prick in the morning, maybe once a week, mail it in and get a health check on, you know, 200 markers and see what's going on. And you just mail it in and get back your report and it displays up on your mirror, you know, all good, just like a, you get a COVID test now, right? You get a positive or a negative, but imagine a world where suddenly, you go through your know, cardiovascular system, kidney system, kind of like your a rocket ship or, a, or your car, where each of these various areas, you know, you get a report back and someone say, well, you know, you're in the yellow zone for your cardiovascular. These following things aren't quite right. Maybe you better go to a physician, uh, mm. have that checked out a little further. So, so that's where I see it going. And so the expensive thing we have going, I mentioned earlier with QBio, which does this medical version and whole body MRI, it's $3,500. It's not that cheap for the average person. But on the other hand, uh, and you, we recommend twice a year, imagine you're in a high risk group for cardiovascular disease, you know, maybe measuring somebody for $3,500 is pretty uh, you know, economically a, a good thing because if somebody gets a heart attack and goes on long-term disability, it skyrockets, right? A, a day in the ICU is $48,000 in the US. It's just ridiculous. So that's a lot of, you know, these $3,500 visits you could uh, put in there and, and save that from happening. Imagine 10 days stay, then you're up to half a million bucks. So the point is that, um, yeah, I, I think if we can shift things to healthcare, we can save money. Uh, and, and so the goal really is to keep people as healthy as long as possible. Then, you know, the whole thing crashes, you die, uh, extend health span as maximum yes. as possible, not extend people where then they live, you know, unhealthy lives for a number more exactly. years. I think that's also where this really wonderful value of the data and of these wearables comes in because we're, I think we're going to see big strides being made with extension of a lifespan. And of course that should go hand in hand with the extension of health span. You know, now most people are afraid they're going to spend the last 10 years plus of the years miserable dealing with smaller or bigger ailments. And you just brought it up um, as well, you know, cost. So um, just if, if we think 
think about on on a on a country level the amount of money countries spend for you know can't even really call it healthcare but sick care and people getting sick and how that impacts not only the individual lives and the loved ones around one but on a societal level the impact it has on the well-being of a society on the productivity um so how been agree yeah we have to totally change our thinking on this because i think most people and i would agree assume that everybody who's born today will live to be 100. uh that's probably an underestimate in my opinion yes, i agree they'll probably live beyond that and already you can see you know in 1906 i saw some very interesting plots you know of the age distribution of people and of course a lot of people were under 20 you know and then they gradually the numbers went down and down and down and now you look at the age distribution of like the US and actually Europe, and it's kind of flat. There's as many like seven-year-olds as there are 65-year-olds. It's some number that's flat all the way across. So it's a very different distribution that we have to prepare for. The idea that you retire at 65 is of course absurd because you know, you're taking people out of the workforce when they're still productive, and then you're going to put them into a dependent category. So economically, we have to think, as you were pointing out, whole new systems as well for how to keep people productive and contributing and healthy. And, and they will, right? People want to be contributors all the way through yes. their health span as long as they can. And, and so there's a role that we have now, you know, people will say, well, four generation families will be pretty common. I think that's true that people are having kids later. So maybe that's not hundred percent true, but definitely it's multi-generational families for sure. A three will exist and probably a lot of fours. And so you have this senior group that can be put into action in ways maybe we haven't thought about before. So I think we have to think about this whole thing very creatively with, again, good living circumstances for all different ages. Uh, you know, thinking about people as contributors at all different ages yeah. in a different way. Right now, we're a very youth-oriented society. Yeah. And maybe I'm biased because I'm older, but <laughs> so that may be cheating a little bit too. But um, yeah, I, I I do think that we want to we have to accommodate all these groups. And the U.S., as you pointed out, you know, I, I think something like half of the healthcare costs show up in the last year of life, and that's why the U.S. is so much more expensive than any other country because we spend a ton on that last year. And obviously, imagine if you could front end push a lot of those costs up earlier uh, and have people living healthier. Yes. lives, that would be much, much more fruitful for everybody. Indeed. And not just the uh, financial, the economic cost, but what you said before also, you know, older people can be productive in ways that we can't even fathom right now, whether that could be, you know, second career or educating themselves, studying or taking care of the community or raising, helping raise multi-generational families. I really think that we're losing a lot by when we're too youthful focused instead of um, what is healthy for society, have all the members, uh, you know, viewed all different, but all equal, in a sense, and contributing to the whole of society. Totally agree. Yeah. You know, I've heard the phrase recently called age racism or ageism. Ageism, yes. People are very discriminatory against old folks. Yes. Uh, and I guess, you know, it's true. We've kind of grown up that way. Oh, he's, he or she's feeble, this kind of thing. And the reality is, but nobody really says, well, you know, boy, those people who are pretty sharp <laughs> and are still, you know, people who are still have a lot of strong mental acuities can contribute a ton because uh, they have experience to go behind it. 
And so we should figure out ways of, you know, putting that to use. Yes. And I think some of that uh, non-appreciation probably also stems from some repressed Jungian uh, fear of our own mortality, decay and death. <laughs> so yeah, we maybe, better, yeah. yeah we but it's, better, a, we're, it's a culture that way too, right? Just look at, you know, I don't know about you. I don't watch much TV anymore, but my, my daughters do. And of course, it's all youth stuff, right? <laughs> That's on TV. So our whole culture is built around that. And so, um, yeah, but we, we I, I think we have to think about shifting this at many, many different levels. Absolutely. And the work that you do will also influence pretty substantial shifts. We hope so. Yeah, I, I totally want to change healthcare. I just think we can we can make it true healthcare. We need creative models. Here's the problem with the US. We, you know, you, it's just not set up that way from a financial side uh, that we don't pay to keep people healthy. We only pay them when they go to the doctors. The head of the hospital used to tell me, like, nobody pays me unless they walk in the door. And he didn't mean this disparagingly. He just said, nobody pays me unless we walk in the door. And they're not going to walk in the door while they're healthy. So the whole system's built around this. And so I think we need creative ways, you know. This is where single payer countries will have a big advantage because people aren't shifting around. Like right now, nobody will pay you to get your, your genome sequence, a little bit pricey. It'll, it won't matter in the future when it's hundred bucks, but mm-hmm. uh, when it's thousand bucks or even more with the interpretation, it's kind of pricey when in the US people change their healthcare provider every 18 months. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, why would I pay say $2,000 to get your genome sequence and interpret it when 18 months from now you're gonna be with somebody else? Uh, so I think we need creative ways like we're employers. It's to their benefit to keep their employees healthy. At least large ones can probably afford it. Uh, maybe have, you know, providers have uh, health plans that, that can actually incentivize people. You know, the, I think there's only two things that really incentivize people. One is money and family. And I think, you know, if you can give people a discount for, you know, taking their 10,000 steps every day or doing various things that would help. Uh, keep them healthy, they'll they'll do it if they can save money on it or if there's ways of getting their family engaged too, um, that can be very helpful. There's nothing like having your family members, but you, you know, get up off the couch and, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, simple things, by the way, like if you eat a big meal, it'll spike your glucose if you don't have good glucose control. And just a simple thing of taking a walk after a meal can be incredibly beneficial. Most people I don't know if they don't know it or they don't realize it or they don't want to do it, but, you know, having a family member say, hey, let's go for a walk yes. <laughs> right after a big dinner might be a good thing, right? How about that as a kind of thing to make people live healthier lives? Absolutely. And it's all about accountability, which, of course, family members and loved ones can provide, but also these wearables can provide. What you track, it kind of sticks, especially when you see results. So it's really uh, true. The CGM stuff in particular, if you wear one of these, it'll be guarantee eye opening. And I know we talked about that earlier. Yeah. We formed a company around that one too, because that one not only shows you the data, makes food recommendations and actually teaches you some behaviors that will be very, very useful. It's called January AI. So it's a personalized uh, continuous glucose monitoring plan, if you will, to basically try and get you to modify your behavior a little bit in a healthier fashion. So, so eat the foods, you know, keep away from the foods that you like that are spiking you. And here's some substitutes that won't spike you as much. And, mm. oh, these foods don't spike you. You like those? Well, keep eating those. <laughs> so it's very simple things that 
uh, and they wouldn't be terribly hard adjustments to make that will, I hope, keep people healthier. So this is the kind of idea that we're doing both in the lab and through these companies we spin off. So I'm very interested in CGM. And what was a company name you just mentioned? Yeah, it's called January AI, standing for artificial intelligence. So because we're we're building personalized models around people. And January starts for you. In January, you make a New Year's resolution for a fresh, healthy life. And so uh, that's really where the name comes from. So, so all these companies, yeah, they're, they're, they're meant to improve people's health. And it's our way of trying to scale the research we do in the lab, as I say, to try and get it out further to the planet. And the goal is, you know, I know they probably, that one's not that expensive, but if they start out a little pricey, but as you learn how to improve things, the goal will be to get them down. I, I'd love to see these deep data dives we do on people be $200 in the future. And I, mm -hmm. I actually think that's doable. There, there usually winds up being that not happening because we tend to add on more measurements. <laughs> and so we don't really reduce the cost. We just get more uh, information. But but the goal would be to have a light version maybe and, and mm -hmm. get it really inexpensive. Minimally wearables, like we talked about, should be dirt cheap and should be out to everybody. Yes, and that would be outstanding. And uh, Mike, there's a question I ask every guest because it fascinates me to learn uh, from people such as yourself. Um, and it's with regard to the practices that have elevated and improved your life mentally, physically, or spiritually. So of course, in your case, one of them would be uh, wearables and uh, collecting and analyzing data. Is there anything else you could share with us? Oh, I exercise every day, first thing in the morning. Uh, um, it's partly done to, uh, you know, control my glucose, although I've always been active through my life. So I was a runner. I shifted from running to weightlifting mm -hmm. uh, because I had heard that body mass, increased muscle mass was better for glucose homeostasis. And that actually failed on me. I did, in fact, I was doing whole body work. So I saw I did, in fact, get 10 pounds of muscle mass. I'm, I was generally quite thin. I'm still not that, <laughs> I'm not overweight by anybody's standard. But uh, I did gain 10 pounds of muscle mass, but my glucose kept going up. But I still keep it up because, you know, it's been good for my posture. You know, sarcopenia are things that people worry about as they get older and, and stuff. So it's a way of fending off that. And it just makes me feel healthier and happier. So, so exercise, I think most people in the longevity field will tell you that's number one for your health. Uh, and, and some people will say food's number one. But I think most people would say exercise is number one. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I do try and watch uh, because my diabetes, I, I try and keep my carbs down. So that's would be number two. But um, yeah, those are probably my biggest things I, I do besides all this monitoring that you just heard about. Yes. Excellent, Mike. And uh, for people who want to learn more about your work, I mean, you're also amongst many other things, uh, the author of the book, Genomics and Personalized Medicine, what everyone needs to know for people who want to do a deep dive, they can read your book and people who want to reach out to you or in general, just keep informed about what you are currently doing and focusing on in the near future, where can they do so? Yeah, sure. So the book is actually written for the layperson. It's it's meant to be an easy read, and and I've been told it's pretty accessible. So I hope that's true. We have a chapter in there on wearables too, even though the title says genomics. It does hit the theme of big data, but we'd love to have people enroll in our study. Some of them, like the wearable study, you can do anywhere in the world. Uh, we didn't talk about this. I mentioned this briefly, but we can detect COVID from a smartwatch, ah, actually, yes. along with other stressors. 
Uh, and so you could join that study. It turns out uh, COVID has a long pre-symptomatic period, but your heart rate jumps up. Uh-huh. So we now have an alerting system. We can detect COVID in 80% of the people, uh, a meeting of three days prior to symptoms. So imagine that you're finding people there because their heart rate jumps up and we'll, we'll send the red alert. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we'd love that more people join that study because it's not just COVID that triggers, it's also other respiratory viruses and, uh, and other stresses can trigger it. And so by collecting more data and people annotating, you know, scoring that data for what's going on, we hope to improve our algorithm. So ultimately we can tell the difference between a mental stress event versus uh, mm-hmm. a respiratory virus. I already know we can tell the difference between a bacterial infection and mm-hmm. a viral infection from this. And by the way, it works on asymptomatic cases too. 14 of 18 uh, asymptomatic COVID infections we can pick up with a smartwatch. It's pretty incredible, yeah. actually. How can, yeah. how can someone enroll in that study, Mike? Yeah, so go to our website, innovations.stanford.edu. And if you want to do the wearables one, all our studies are there, but slash wearables. So innovations.stanford.edu slash wearables will capture, uh, will take you right to the wearables study. And, and that's our COVID-19 and other stressors that you'll see. Uh, and we have other studies running around. Some you have to be in the Bay Area for. Some are continuous glucose monitoring, which are kind of cool. Uh, some are around fiber. We're very keen on diet and fiber in particular, how it might improve health. So we have some some of those you can do, again, from anywhere in the world. Others, if, for any of the deep data stuff, you have to be in the Bay Area because we pull your blood and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Outstanding. Well, Mike, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure and really um, lots of food for the mind talking to you. Thank you for what you're doing. Uh, As I already said before, I think uh, we can't even uh, fathom the impact that the type of work you're doing is going to help to change around health care and actually make it health care versus sick care. So thank you very much, Mike. Thank you for being my guest today. Thanks for having me. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.